0: <laughs> now beginning and to begin a day this is the, the beginning of the day this is a reflective thinking that I'm doing right now this, the way it is it feels like this, just notice your the the way you're physically feeling, whether you feel vigorous or tired, alert or dull. This reflection isn't passing judgment, it's not saying you should feel a certain way but just to accept the way you're feeling at this time to notice it rather than to just come in and do things uh, half-heartedly or mechanically or just caught in uh, assumptions and attitudes and ways of reacting that are never fully recognized or consciously accepted So to take things like a simple reflection on the beginning, beginning of a retreat, meditation retreat, the beginning of a day, because just that uh, that word itself implies that there's something to follow, that something in time. The way it is, there's it, the body sitting, uh, sitting and breathing. There's the ability to feel the, whether you feel cold or just right or warm, the temperature, physical feeling in the body, whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable. Body's breathing. So this, these are quite obvious experiences. That, but say when we are reflecting on Dhamma, we're we're bringing this into full conscious recognition, because we can be breathing and sitting and feeling cold and all the rest without and just be caught in habits and reactions. It's never we're never fully with the way it is because our minds are off somewhere resisting, reacting out of the fears and desires. So this retreat is, see, this is an opportunity to to be at ease, to be relaxed, to be reflective, begin to notice just the flow of life as it is life as a flow, as a flux that, that is alright there's nothing uh, wrong with it there's nothing that shouldn't be when we begin to tune into the natural flow, into Dhamma but when we're caught up with, with the fears and desires that we produce onto life, onto the moments of our conscious experience then of course we experience suffering recognize that you're coming most of you are coming from a very active life life uh, living in your own homes your work friends all the kind of activities and familiar things are now uh, not here, this is a different place this isn't your place. This isn't your work. So, coming from, a, say, an active life, busy life, where we become very habituated and caught up in that which we're used to and accustomed to, we come to a place that is not ours, that is, uh, that is much more restrained, contained not as active we're now allowing ourselves to settle down so the first three days of any retreat you have to allow yourself this experience of restlessness and, and uh, this the agitation uh, physical agitation, physical restlessness and mental uh, agitation that you might be feeling is the hangovers from the active lives the busyness the, the obligations, the duties responsibilities and so forth that you have say in de- in your ordinary daily life if you're patient uh, with all this say, it takes about three days to, to be able to just Let it all kind of settle down through the the powerful effects of meditation, silence, restraint. During this retreat, we've got everything that happens as part of it. Whatever uh, pleasant or unpleasant experiences, whether everything goes exactly right, no disruptions, no problems, uh, just smooth sailing through two weeks, or whether there's disruptions or problems, earthquakes, fires, volcanoes, hurricanes, or whatever. Determined to regard it all as part of the part of meditation, the danger of of uh, formal practice is becoming incre- increasingly selfish, wanting to control the environment so that nothing disturbs or disrupts. Mm-hmm. So when you become eager for controlling uh, everything and trying to to get rid of of those disruptions or sounds or conditions that irritate or frustrate you and try to control environments so those things can't affect you then you become increasingly selfish self-centered so i always found it uh, wise in the beginning of a formal meditation retreats confirm in my mind that whatever happens is is the way it is, is Dhamma to be known, to be realised, rather than something going wrong or something that shouldn't happen, shouldn't be. Then you can begin to observe the, the that in yourself which which is irritated or annoyed or wants to get rid of things or doesn't want this or doesn't like that. Because these are the, these are the conditions of our mind that, that make us quite miserable whether we're on a retreat or at home wherever we are. The mind that complains doesn't want life to be the way it is and then worries because we want, we have an ideal of how we would like it, how life should be, and all our attempts to manipulate, control, hold things together in the long run and inevitably fall apart. and We become despairing and depressed by the fact that we lose control over ourselves, over others, over the environment. So an attitude of acceptance of the flow of life and here at the city of 10,000 Buddhas this is the way it is here it's the, the way the, uh, the conditions here are this way we're, we're bringing into consciousness that, that we're willing to say accept the way it is to bear with be patient rather than to think it should be some other way. The same applies to yourself. What you're feeling. uh, Your emotional reactions. Your physical uh, sensations, whatever they might be, the way it is so that the, the mind is open, receptive, acknowledging Letting go of the desire to manipulate and control. Reflecting on the posture and the meditation, we We notice, we note the sitting, standing, walking, lying down, the four postures that our bodies are in throughout the day and night. So that they just to they bring attention to the body itself, the sitting posture, to affirm sitting is like this, the way it feels. So that your, your, the very act of sitting, the body sitting still in this way is a conscious experience rather than just uh, a habit of sitting and, and letting the mind wander away. Have you ever just thought about noticing what sitting is like? The stability of the human body to sit still, to sustain itself in, in a posture. With sitting, it's a sense of finding a balance, isn't it? If you're too lax, you're not, you're not using energy, you're just letting the force of gravity kind of pull the body down, slumping down, then it becomes very uncomfortable, painful. If you're too rigid, you're trying too hard, you're just for, willfully forcing the body to be straight, just as a... An act of willpower—you can't sustain it for very long. After a while, it just—it falls down. You can't—you can't, you can't you find—you can't find a balance point through just uh, willing yourself to sit. So you're reflecting, noticing what what the balancing ability of the body, where it feels comfortable, where the spine is in alignment. Where the energies flow through the body properly, this sense of, of, of the body being energized in this sitting posture, not just controlled to willpower, but its natural energies are allowed to circulate and to uh, hold it, then one finds the ability to s- sit straight. It's something that we aren't forcing upon the body, something that the body can do. It's, that is natural and comfortable for it to be able to do the body to breathe inhaling, exhaling this is the way it is this isn't something that we are it's up to us to decide whether we're going to breathe or not the body breathes according to its needs so one of the as most of you know one of the main kind of standards for concentrating the mind is on the natural breathing rhythms of the body they have different points. Some people concentrate at the nostrils, where you feel the air entering the nostrils, the inhalation, exhalation. Then the others uh, teach the concentration at the uh, abdomen, But this is uh the main main object is to bring attention to the breathing the way the body is breathing without any attempt to control it or make it any certain way. And just notice that uh, the, the inhalation, holding your attention to, the, to just the rhythm, the inhalation, the exhalation, inhalation, exhalation, the, an exercise of practicing, sustaining your attention on this very natural rhythm of your own body. Regard the reflection on the breath as a peaceful practice. Breathing is something that is neither excites, it neither excites the mind, nor is it painful or unpleasant. It's neutral. If breathing were exciting, then we'd all be absolutely fascinated by our own breathing. If breathing were painful and unpleasant, then it, then we just uh, become negative towards it. But because it's neither exciting, interesting to us, nor is it unpleasant or painful, then it, what we begin to recognize is peace, peaceful, calming, tranquilizing, So affirm that in your mind when you, or when you are contemplating the breath. You can use the word peace itself for inhale, inhaling, and exhaling. This this sense of inhaling, this sense of well-being, peaceful, calm. Towards yourself, towards your body and mind, and then exhaling with this sense of sending forth peace and calm to the people around to the people in this room and Recognize the auspiciousness of this event. The, the place it's in—it's it, been a place that has been used for the teaching, practice of Dhamma for many years. The um, refuges in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the Eight Precepts. the The fact that you have a shelter for the night, uh, food will be offered uh, the requisites for survival as a living being are adequate, so that just to to establish the fact that that everything is all right, what is essential and necessary is. It has been provided, been offered, and that that um, the supporting conditions are beneficial to us. They're good. They're, they're uh, as good as you as you as you can get in this form as a human being, with the refuges, the eight precepts, the teaching of the Dhamma. And so now it's up to you to, to do the work. The situation has been provided. The, uh, the uh, form has been established by us. We're, uh, the one thing Buddhist monks can do for lay people is to give occasions such as this and to provide reflections and offer these kind of teachings. That then the, the work is really up to you, what you do with it, how you use this, this occasion. You don't want to spoon feed you and, and make you dependent and not a guru uh, type of uh, teaching where you, where you have to believe everything I say and, and kiss my feet every day. But get, so it's not not a, 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 an act of worshiping a, a a teacher or a guru, but in listening and contemplating what is being said, applying it to your own experience when we talk about suffering we're not talking about some kind of abstraction or somebody else's suffering or the suffering of of the of the Kurds or the uh, Shiite Muslims in southern Iraq or the Ethiopians. We're talking, we're applying this this, uh, word suffering to our own experience. We can recognize the suffering uh, of others, Uh, that's easy enough, but to really look and come to terms, understand our own feelings insecurity or inadequacy of inner anger rage or resentment or bitterness or jealousies and fears, these kind of emotional states that haunt and, and corrupt our conscious experience of life, the suffering. So that this suffering is the truth that Buddha emphasized is the kind of sign that we use to awaken to because suffering is what human beings tend to avoid and reject always running away looking for happiness the truth of the matter is that when you stop running and you begin to look and examine investigate suffering you find out you're not suffering. Ultimately, there isn't any suffering. So, when when you really are mindful, uh, you, you aren't creating suffering onto the flow of life. Life has its its beauty and its ugliness, its pleasures and pains, and changing conditions as they are hot weather, cold weather getting old we have physical pain and illnesses, fevers, these are these are just part of conscious experience of living in the human form on this planet this is the way it is this is uh, this is which we can bear, this is all endurable experience. But what we can learn to do is to stop creating problems, compounding the moments of our lives with fears and desires and, and uh, wanting things we don't have and not wanting life to be the way it is and resenting and, and uh, suppressing our feelings or, or indulging in self-pity or seeking endless distractions and fascinations and interesting, exciting activities, running about, running away out of fear, out of desire, then this is the realm we call samsara, which just seems to go around and around in a kind of seemingly endless cycle, weary cycle that becomes increasingly unsatisfactory the older we get. So the way out of suffering. Ourselves still caught in in negative states and a kind of can be an ongoing reactive negative reactiveness to whatever is taking place or what's ever happening towards ourselves or towards others towards the things around us and we've developed the discriminative faculties to a high degree through modern education, through ability to read and write, to think, to compare, to use logic and reason and therefore this discriminative function of mind begins to dominate conscious experience. Everything is compared with something else, uh, better or worse. Everything we do and the assumptions we have about ourselves is always compared to someone else or to ideas or ideals, how things should be. And so the attitude that I want to emphasize as, a, as an attitude most conducive towards liberation from this negative conditioning is an attitude of, of openness and willingness to look directly at the way things are. Rather than to try to get something or get rid of something trying to to manipulate, control your mind or the conditions around you, uh, we take the attitude of accepting, noticing, reflecting upon the nature of conditions which are that they're impermanent. And so that we can begin to look honestly, directly at the f- moods, the thoughts, the memories, the fears and desires that we might be experiencing in, through our minds or that we have repressed and have rejected, we now have the opportunity to observe, witness see them as they really are as that which comes and goes So, the attitude of the meditator is one of patience, acceptance, a willingness to bear with pain or unpleasantness, physical discomfort or uh, physical pain, emotional stress or distress or whatever. These are the dhammas, these are the, these are the, the conditions that we are witnessing to, observing. Observing them no longer in the judgmental, critical way, but as that which is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. Now, the, the paradigm that the Buddha gave us uh, is, a, is a perfect pattern to, to uh, reflect upon because the, the refuges that we take, the, the, the three refuges in the Buddha-Dhamma-Sangha, actually are the, the pattern of experience that we have as individual human beings, but transposed from the ego, the self-centered personality to the Buddha, so when we take refuge in the Buddha what we really the, the effectiveness and, and uh, practicalness of this refuge lie in our ability to be mindful to be that which is aware intuitive, sensitive receptive knowing, using wisdom So the, the Buddha as a refuge is ability to be fully conscious as a conscious being where we are all conscious beings at this time aren't we anyone not conscious right now we are consciousness is this way isn't it it's having been born in this form this is this and as a separate seemingly separate individual being then this is the experience of consciousness where there's a subject, an object. So uh, f- for this we, uh, we recognize that we are the subject. I am the subject of this moment. The subject and then there's the object. You are the objects. But for each one of us, each one of us is the subject. Experiencing, noticing, reacting to the objects or that which we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. And this experience of consciousness, uh, out of ignorance, out of not understanding the true Dhamma, then we interpret it always in the wrong way, which is the egotistical, selfish, Personal. Everything is taken on a personal level out of the conditioning of your mind. Yeah, how your mind's been conditioned, your, your karmic tendencies, your character, your, your fears and desires become yourself, become the subject. They influence the subjective experience and distort reality so that we experience suffering as a result. But in refuge in Buddha, we're we're now taking refuge in that which is pure, pure and intelligent. It's what is before there's any uh, the conditioning of your mind. The conditioning of your mind is can be any which way. We all have our own. Uh, from different cultural backgrounds, classes, races, ethnic backgrounds, uh, different age groups and influences and experience are all the conditions of the mind. The memories and thoughts are infinitely variable, different, changing from one person to another. But what is it that, that was before all that? that underlies if we are just a condition of the mind then the, then there is no possible escape from suffering there's only the we're only caught in a in a in a realm of endless pain and misfortune because the uh, the conditions the conditioning all are their nature is to arise and cease, to be born and die. So, So we're caught in this sense of being someone who's dying or going to die. There's always this sense of fear and despair and anguish in the human mind as a reaction to this wrong understanding, this wrong view. So we're changing that to the right view right understanding and this we accomplish very much through developing this sense of refuge in the Buddha the Dhamma, it's always the the Buddha seeing and knowing the Dhamma and the Dhamma then means the, the truth of the way it is the true way of things ultimate truth reality in other words so that there is this ability for each one of us when we let go of the conditioning of the mind and the, the reactiveness and the habitual tendencies to be able to see and know things as they are. And that is what we mean by taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma. And the third refuge of Sangha is the, those who practice those who live in the right way. There's the monastic sangha, the, the bhikkhu Bhikshuni sangha. Uh, there's uh, various ways of, it means a, a community or group. The actual word itself. It can be called the church. But that's, that would be misleading, wouldn't it? in this country, anyway. So, they, the sangha. And refuge in sangha doesn't mean refuge in in, in an organization, but in that sangha of, of all those, all beings who are practicing in the right way. So it's not to be seen so much in a as a physical manifestation, as a refuge in right action, in, in living in the right way, doing things in the right way. The Sangha is, is the, our individual human beings as a community, supporting, helping, encouraging each other toward the good, toward reality. Sincere and determined, resolved. So in, this, in these three refuges, we have the, the, uh, that perfect knowing, perfect wisdom of the Buddha, knowing and realizing, seeing the truth, the Dhamma. And then each individual person here, each living being here on this retreat, taking refuge in Sangha means to determine, to, to do good, to refrain from doing that which is harmful or disruptive, cruel, unkind, insensitive towards yourself or to others and to practice in the right way. So each each of these refuges or jewels, we call them the three jewels or the three refuges, mean this is how to, to reflect upon it. I find it very... Important to teach the three refuges to Western people because uh, this is uh, one can see that, that, that oftentimes uh, Western Buddhists or me- people in practicing meditation in Western uh, countries tend to dismiss it and not see its value not really develop it and so they, they miss out on something the kind of very essence of Of the uh, holy life of the spiritual development the very the very essence has been overlooked because this is this is proclaiming an uh, a truth and a refuge and a way that is uh, that, we, that we we're not taking it for granted we 're not believing in refuges we're not uh, just regarding these refuges as as kind of sentiments of traditional Buddhism. We're internalizing these refuges. We're making these refuges real in our practice. So that Buddha, Dhamma Sangha are realities, are something, they apply to our experience of life, living, breathing, conscious, feeling, experience. They aren't just Theravadan or Mahayana customs and traditions, sentiments and, and nice ideas, they're actually very profound ways of, um, profound refuges that help us to, to endure, to put up with that which we think we can't endure, to be able to understand and know what we think we can't know, Because in reflection on Dhamma the, 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 we are now in this realm of consciousness. Consciousness is the experience of from, from birth being born and therefore we have to experience life from where we are as a subject experiencing the objects. Instead of Interpreting this experience from the habitual tendencies of of, uh, the conditioned mind, we are now intentionally, with deliberate intention, adopting this this paradigm of the refuge. The Buddha knowing the truth, seeing the, the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is. And in the practical living experience within the human form during this time, we'll we'll be together for two weeks here at the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, in this meditation hall. And what happens, what goes on, uh, or what doesn't happen, uh, for what is pleasant, painful, desired or undesired, uh, whatever it is, we're we're now choosing to look at it as the Buddha seeing the truth, the Dhamma, rather than me reacting to this and that, and and being caught up in in just the <clears throat> uh, immature emotional and reactive tendencies of our minds. In uh, then the the uh form for the retreat we always like to establish our intention we're all going to live here during this time uh under the eight precepts which is a a a guideline for action and speech and restraint so that these these uh, eight precepts help when we determine to live under these eight precepts. And we, they're, not to, they're not commandments, a kind of uh, pushed onto us. We're not coming from the high seat, or from the pulpit, telling you uh, that you have to keep these precepts. But they are the precepts that we take to reflect upon as guidelines, how we're going to relate to each other during this retreat, how we are going to help each other and support each other during this retreat. So the first precept is the the most important precept, to refrain from intentionally taking the life of other beings. and hopefully this is not a great problem with most of you at this time uh, usually people coming to meditation retreats are not prone towards kind of liking to murder or take the life of creatures but it is an important thing to avow to to take as a group uh, because as we can see just the I look over my lifetime now, how much violence, wars, uh, brutality, murder, and all kinds of, dreadful, not towards human beings, not to mention the animals. Through Second World War, and all the wars that have followed, uh, endless procession of, of death, destruction of just human life, because this one precept has not been regarded as, as an important, important enough to follow. I mean, when it, it, it's merely, it, it's not considered the important uh, consideration for one's life. And yet it is. This is, our humanity allows us to choose, to decide, to make our minds up, to not intentionally take the life of other creatures. Sometimes just being, living in this realm, this sense realm, the way it is, as is, we uh, end up accidentally or unintentionally destroying the life of creatures, but that we can't help. That's just the way it is. If there's no intention. But we can, we can use our ability to intend our mind towards doing what is right through action and speech so we now say I will refrain from intentionally taking the life of other creatures this includes human beings to uh, all uh, forms of uh, conscious living creatures from the likable to the detestable Now, that alone is a kind of miracle of our humanity, isn't it? That we can actually determine such a thing. That I can actually want to and see the value of making such a, a determination an intention. When you think of it, this is, this is the way that we can solve the problems that we face worldwide in in regards to wars and political, economic, social problems. It seems so uh, beyond any possibility of solution because the way we try to solve problems is not through moral or ethical means but through power, isn't it? Through intimidation, power, manipulation, control. Not through what is truly beautiful about our humanity is that we can decide each one of us I can't decide it for you each one of us has to decide this and make this determination for ourselves so on this summer solstice night we we make this determination uh, to refrain from intentionally taking the life of other creatures then the second precept in regards to uh, the property and things that belong to others, uh, to respect that which belongs to other beings, to people here on the retreat, to the city of 10,000 buddhas, to the creatures, animals and so forth that live uh, around us. We're not going to disturb, disrupt. Uh, even even if we have no intention to steal just to to touch or take or borrow things that that don't belong to us because at this time we're we're we our intention is to respect the property the things the the places that belong to others so that's our de- our determination for the second precept the third precept in regards to uh, sensual uh, thinking of sensual pleasures uh, at this time we 're determining not to uh, say uh, sexual uh, activities to refrain from any intentional deliberate sexual or erotic activities to refrain from seeking distractions through uh, through, through sense delight because at this time where, where our practice, our, our intention is to, is to concentrate, to look to examine, to watch to begin to see how much we distract ourselves through sexual, sexual activities or just sensual uh, pleasures just going from from one seeking sen- sen- uh, pleasures through the senses one right after another to distract the mind rather than to understand or deliberate the mind, so at this time we regard each other in that way in this way of, of not, not seeking or or intending to expect demand. Uh, Sexual uh, involvements, romantic involvements. This time we're determining to to live this this time together in this way that we we're not making these demands or we have not uh, developing these kind of expectations in our minds. If these kind of thoughts and desires come into consciousness, then we're Looking at them as that which is arises ceases, we're putting them in the proper perspective of knowing them for what they are rather than as something we should either uh, follow and act on or something we should suppress and reject out of fear and aversion then the fourth precept in regards to speech and during this retreat we, we try to maintain what we call the noble silence and noble silence is not dumb silence dumb silence is, is where you uh, you refuse to speak even when speaking would be the compassionate appropriate thing to do So noble silence is we're taking the responsibility for our speech, Uh, we're not, we're not going to try to lure each other into conversations, chit-chat, gossip, uh, so forth, or any other forms of of, uh, habitual speech habits, tendencies, but we will learn how to be silent and still. If there is something important to say, some message to communicate, uh, something that needs to be said, or, and then that is appropriate to, to speak at that time. But other than that, then try to, to just watch, observe this impulse, the, the, the kind of compulsiveness to want to say, to speak, to chat, to, to break the silence. Uh, it's uh, important because uh, oftentimes our speech is very much uh, something we use to, to run away from fears or anxieties. Just by chatting, talking frivolously, gossiping, we, we uh, can move away from our discomforts or fears. But in this retreat, we want to look at these fears and this feeling of discomfort, being ill at ease or unsure. We're, we're looking at it, we're observing it in this way of the Buddha seeing the Dhamma rather than, than just trying to get rid of what we don't like. we we'll run away from things. So we use the fourth precept as the precept uh, during this retreat of noble silence. the fifth refrain from taking uh, addictive drugs and drink so that we're not uh, influencing our consciousness with the with that with substances that uh, distort it and or ma- make it unusual we want to use the normal consciousness the consciousness that is not being affected or influenced by chemicals or foreign substances That is, not to get addicted to various drugs and drink and so forth. So we refrain from taking any of those kind of uh, substances during this retreat. Then the sixth, the sixth uh, precept, is uh, to refrain from taking or eating at times that are not designated. For, the, for most of us, we, like the, the, the monks and nuns, we can't eat after 12 noon or 1 o'clock at least in daylight savings time. idea of the high noon. Or we, we can't take solid meals in the afternoon. Uh, we limit our ability to eat and so we, because we, the eating is another uh, habit we develop to kill time, to get away from things, to have biscuits or cookies or sweets or or things around that we can uh, munch on and chew, and and that also is another way to to say distract oneself. So in the uh, sixth precept, we're We're restraining. We're deliberately choosing to restrain, to to not eat, not to take substances like that, uh, except at the appropriate and designated times according to the schedule. So you can watch yourselves wanting to run down to the McDonald's or In regards to the food, the the food is to learn to accept the food that that is made available, not to to uh, and to develop a sense of of uh, gratitude for this food, rather than uh, a, a kind of discriminative, uh, critical appraisal of it. the mind that, that gets attached to special kinds of foods and has a very, gets very fussy and, and very specialized in diet, we can see, we can begin to observe the, that in us which, which wants or doesn't want or likes or doesn't like in regards to the, a basic requisite needed for survival is food. But the precept itself means to, to uh, determine to not eat, except at the designated times. Then the, the uh, seventh is a very long precept, which uh, includes all forms of entertainments and pleasurable distractions. Dancing, singing, uh, going to shows, watching the television, listening to the radio. Um, reading novels uh, playing games uh, doing things to just distract yourself through fun through, through pleasurable uh, interesting, exciting entertainments so that's the, that's the precept where we say we, we can't allow ourselves to have any fun on this retreat But this also is a guideline, isn't it? because the this uh, the modern the modern life is it seems to be just a, a, so much energy going toward distracting oneself through pleasure, seeking distractions on the television or kinds of games and and uh, things that one can do that are certainly. Uh, you know, one can't say are immoral or wrong to do. These are kind of uh, puritanically condemning all forms of pleasure and and fun and entertainment. It's not like that. It is a precept that we voluntarily take in order to observe, to begin to witness to the way we tend to seek these things or depend upon all these distractions. For our survival for our, for our just to get away from the fears or the doubts worries of our mind the negativity of our mind and the, the uh, eighth precept regards to sleep not to spend this time just crashed out on your bed to sleep through the retreat but to to learn how much sleep you need how much you really need, and what is just uh, indulgence or habit, and what is necessary for uh, resting the body and so by taking this eighth precept, then you will you will have some wisdom in regards to how much sleep you need so're we're, we're touching upon food and sleep, uh, games and and music and dancing and pleasures. Uh, fun and games uh, the, the drugs and drink sexual activities uh, notice how, how it goes through the, 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 the uh, realm of human experience from say the most uh, worst possible thing a human being can do to kill some other human being to the the last precept, which is merely to to not indulge uh, in in heedless sleeping. So these are, see these, the the western mind tends to always look at these these, uh, precepts, not as precepts, but as commandments, which is uh, God coming from above saying, thou shalt not kill. And that's a that's one way that's the that's the way most of our minds have been conditioned isn't it a kind of pointing the finger and and commanding you not to do these things but the the idea of precepts are not commandments but they are uh standards for reflection guidelines we we take these on ourselves we we out of our own love of the good, the true and the beautiful, we, we, we're de- making these determinations. Not because we're af- afraid of, of being punished for doing them, but because we have this aspiration to understand the truth, to live with the, what is truly beautiful and good. So when you start looking at the precepts as, as things that one can that they are, say are beautiful gifts that we that we can choose, we can choose to take on these lovely gifts they're gifts to us aren't they that in this human form we can actually Decide we can actually see the advantage we can actually make such determinations. The conditioning of your mind may react to it, and uh, as no doubt we all have gone through various reactions and rebellions and resistances and fears and worries in regards to the precepts that we keep uh, the the, the Habitual mind, the conditioned mind, doesn't like those kind of restraints. It's not used to it. You're conditioned to not be restrained. You're, you're conditioned to, to follow impulses or to repress them, not to understand them. And so the, these, these uh, precepts are, are guidelines for action and speech, standards that we take for our life here together in order to come to terms with and, and uh, begin to really see what it is that causes us to be negative to be distressed to feel despair and depression because these mental states can all be relinquished and abandoned all the, that co- all the causes of misery and suffering can be abandoned once you understand once you appreciate and fully understand the the freedom you have to choose and to use wisdom and to be mindful and this I think needs to be emphasized over and over again The, the, the potential for humanity is enlightenment to understand, to see things, to know the truth, within the limitation that we find each one of each one of us finds ourselves in in this human limitation and its karma and its in it's good and bad qualities. When you take these refuges and, and precepts, and then really uh, observe what, it, what you're actually feeling in regards to it, because then one can feel resistant, one can feel this is unnecessary, or this uh, this isn't uh, you know the one. The, the mind can react very strongly against, say, moral precepts or, or things that are given to you. And there's a sense of rebelliousness sometimes or stubbornness or resistance. These, these mental states we can be also begin to look at as conditions of the mind. And through this ability to witness, observe, and reflect upon, then these very tendencies that cause us so much misery and unhappiness in our lives are relinquished. It's through understanding the way it is that even the most uh, seemingly stubborn habits and and uh, uh, hopeless uh, uh, tendency that we we have can be actually relinquished and we began to abide in the sense of truth the true nature of things the mind that is not conditioned or that where before the conditioning took place when we began to trust Uh, and to have faith in these refuges, then we begin to have the joy and the bliss that comes from the purity of the heart, of the human heart, the purity, the intelligence, the compassion, the loving, joyous qualities that are natural to this human realm when it is not Disturbed or distorted with all the fears and desires that we accumulate and acquire through ignorance, through not understanding Dhamma or the way things really are. So the Buddha's teaching is actually a teaching which destroys ignorance, uproots it, and we begin to feel a sense of well being, contentment. Happiness, rather than this ongoing kind of negativity and worry, anxiety, self disparagement, that that hangs on into in our mind and can cause even the most pleasant uh, experiences to be to become easily distorted and unpleasant. We have with us on this retreat the Venerable Amaro who most of you know by now and uh, Venerable Jayatharo the monk sitting behind him is the Vice Abbot of Wat Ba Nanacha in Thailand the International Monastery in uh, Ubon Thailand he's visiting this is his first time in the United States. And then the sisters from Amaravati, Sister Tanisara and Sister Abbasara who are, are help, helping on this retreat. And there are ten precept nuns uh, trained in the Theravada tradition and this is their first time in the United States also I told them they're going to see the best of the United States (laughs) the best of California they'll come fly right over to San Francisco and be taken and swept off to the city of 10,000 Buddhas (laughs) 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 Then uh, the, the Venerable Dhamma Master and Abbot of the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, is with us this evening, Venerable Heng Chi, sitting next to Venerable Amaro. And uh, he, he has been so very supportive and, and very uh, encouraging for us to have this retreat here at the city and through his kind of... Uh, encouragement and, and eagerness that that this happened, that, that it's possible that they have been enormously generous uh, the, the, the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis here at the city of 10,000 buddhas and so it's uh, one can only feel a sense of gratitude and appreciation for such kind of overwhelming generosity and uh, eagerness to support and help us in every possible way. And I've had a, a strong connection to this this particular uh, place for about 10 years. I met the Venerable Master Xuân Hua uh, about 10 years ago in San Francisco. And uh, when I met him I felt a very I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I didn't know, you know, what would... Uh, I was advised that I should meet this, this master. But uh, I didn't know quite what to expect. But on the meeting I felt a very strong affinity and, and uh, almost it was a very spontaneous feeling. And just one thing I remember was the way he moved his hands. Uh, something like just a movement like that, the way uh, Venerable Master Wah moved his hands, uh, something in me uh, reminded me of my own teacher in Thailand, uh, Tanajan Cha. And there's a, a, a strong, I had a very strong uh, affinity with uh, Tanajan Cha in Thailand. I spent uh, 10 years training under him.